Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, Nets world? We're back here on the Believe in Nets podcast for a post-trade deadline reaction pod. 10 a.m. on a Friday and just had a really good interview with Brian Lewis of the New York Post breaking down what was a quiet trade deadline for the Brooklyn Nets. There were no seismic or wholesale changes made in Brooklyn, unlike last year when the team traded Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and upended the franchise. The Nets made some more marginal moves. They made two trades, first of which they sent Spencer Dinwiddie to Toronto Raptors for Dennis Schroeder and Thaddeus Young, who was later waived. And they sent Royce O'Neal to the Phoenix Suns for Keita Bates-Diop and three second-round picks. Also, Jordan Goodwin, who was later waived, along with Harry Giles. So the Nets now have one open roster spot. Going to break down a little bit of what went into both these deals before I get to the interview with Brian. In this first deal, you know, the disgruntledness, the declining play of Spencer Dimwitty, his uneasiness with some of what was going on there based on body language, based on involvement in the Nets offense, kind of taking a back seat to Cam Thomas and Mikhail Bridges as Brooklyn's lead ball handler. Spencer was basically a non-factor offensively for the last month plus and was on an expiring contract, a guy that the Nets had extension talks with earlier this season that went nowhere. So it was pretty clear that he wasn't a part of the team's long-term plans. I've said it since earlier this season. He's made comments about the Nets' core and named about everybody but himself. So it was clear that he did not see himself as part of that equation. And because of that, with him on an expiring contract, he was a guy that was logically a trade candidate. Now, I will say that his play had declined so precipitously that it was questioned at his contract, which he makes about $19 million this season, would the Nets even be able to find a trade partner? Because he was damn near viewed as a distressed asset at this point based on his recent play and was said to have no market. And he pretty much did have no no market in terms of draft capital or picks. But to Sean Marks' credit, somewhat out of nowhere, was able to pull off a deal where he gets Dennis Schroeder from the Toronto Raptors. And this is important and not all that surprising that he got a guy like Schroeder because well, maybe surprising that he got the quality of player of Schroeder, but not surprising that he got a point guard because I've said since earlier in the season when Spencer was actually playing some high-level basketball after Ben Simmons got injured and ranked towards the top of the league in assists and assist to turnover ratio, if the Nets move on from Spencer Dinwiddie, they have to find a point guard, whether if for the remainder of this season or the remainder of the next you know season and a half. They needed to find a guy who could handle the ball and initiate offense because Ben Simmons obviously has proven unreliable from an injury standpoint, not a guy that can be relied on to be on the floor for an extended period. And while Mikhail Bridges and Cam Thomas have had the ball as lead ball handlers a lot more, and I'd say Cam Thomas has improved as a passer, neither of them are point guards. Neither of them are really anything even close to point guards, in my opinion. So if you were going to move on from Dinwiddie, it was a necessity to get back a reliable point guard who could handle some of the ball handling responsibilities. And now the Nets get one in Schroeder, and this accomplishes several things because Dennis is under contract next season for $13 million. So they find that stopgap option for next season. The Nets, you know, a lot of fans thought that that could maybe, maybe be D'Angelo Russell coming from the Los Angeles Lakers, who has an $18 million player option for next season. They could have him have that guy for next year, but Russell's play of late, he's playing like one of the best guards in the league over the last 10, 15 games, 
played himself out of trade negotiations with the Lakers. So the Nets get a guy in Schroeder who's, while as not as good a player as Russell, makes $5 million less. And the money is an important factor in both of these trades because the Nets didn't trade Nick Claxton. And the Nets have known aspirations to re-sign Nick Claxton this summer. And it's you know pretty much to the point where having not traded him now, they pretty they have to re-sign Nick Claxton. Otherwise, they risk losing him for nothing, which would be a disaster, frankly. So that is important because the Nets need to stay out of the luxury tax next season to reset a CBA clause known as the repeater tax, where if you're in the tax for three or four seasons, you are subject to really insane penalties and you're taxed like $2.50 to $3 to $3.50 for every $5 over the luxury tax. It's a scale that keeps going up and it can turn a $5 million over the luxury tax into $35 million over the luxury tax. And besides that, there's now apron restrictions, second apron and first apron with a new CBA and all that. So the Nets pretty much have to stay under the repeater tax next season to prevent it from being an issue until 2028. So in order to do that, while re-signing Nick Claxton, they needed to find a point guard who was on a value contract who would allow them to fill out the rest of the roster. They get one in Dennis Schroeder, who's making $13 million next season. You know, not an unbelievable player, but a serviceable, and I'd say a good NBA player who will be able to make an impact for them the rest of this season into next season. And then next season at the trade deadline, if they're in more trade negotiations, it gives them another mid-sized salary to potentially use in a deal along with other things in draft picks for a bigger piece. So it gives them some flexibility from the standpoint of having a reliable point guard on a controlled number that can allow them to re-sign Nick Claxton while also having mid-sized contracts next, next season, which are always valuable in trade negotiations. So a pretty good deal that I think Nets fans should be happy with from the standpoint of dealing Dimwitty as a guy who pretty much had no value, no value and getting a piece back in the door who can not only contribute on the floor, but gives you some flexibility in terms of finances and trades going forward. Second deal, Royce O'Neal to the Phoenix Suns for Keita Bates-Diop and three second-round picks, a two picks from Memphis in 2028 and 2029, and then also a 2026 pick that is the least favorable of a few different teams. So this is a deal that, you know, Royce, the price was reportedly a first-round pick for Royce, and the Nets weren't able to get that. There's questions about could the Nets have traded him at last year's deadline or this summer. They held on to him. You know, they could have, could have they looked to move on from him earlier, potentially. They hold on to him. They get three second-round picks. You know, the Indiana Pacers traded Buddy Heel to the Philadelphia 76ers, who's a much better player than Royce O'Neal and has made the most three-pointers out of any player in the NBA over the last five years. And they got three second-round picks. So the Nets get three second-round picks for Royce O'Neal. Is it anything to jump to the moon about? No, but they get some value. They get a young player in Keita Bates-Diop who doesn't figure to make an impact. Some people said Nasir Little could have been in that package from Phoenix potentially. It seems like the Nets opted to go with an extra second-round pick while getting a smaller salary in Keita Bates-Diop as opposed to um, Nasir Little, which saves them a little bit of money. And like I said, that has impact on their ability to re-sign Nick Claxton and fill out rest of the roster and avoid that repeater tax and the luxury tax. So not a deal that anybody's going to be doing cartwheels around Barclays Center for, but they got some value for Royce, a guy that they needed to trade, a guy that with DFS and with those financial restrictions retaining to the luxury tax, like I said, was not someone who was going to be able to be back and re-sign with this team. So they had to find some value for him. 
They got it from the Phoenix Suns, who are now about as all-in as any team has ever been in the history of the NBA. The Suns have zero first-round picks to trade. They also, now they're down to only one second-round pick to trade, and they've even traded swaps on all their other first-round picks. So this is as all-in as any team could has ever been. And that, you know, could bode well for the Nets, who own unprotected picks via Phoenix in 2025, and then more importantly, 2027 and 2029, and also a swap in 2028. So implications from that deal should help Phoenix in the short term. We'll see how it works out in the long term. The Nets get some value for an inspiring contract. So overall, a quiet deadline, you know, and one that I think played out fairly predictably, but going to break down all of what it says about the Nets' future, comments from Sean Marks, what those say about the Nets' future, what they maybe could have done that they didn't do, what does that say, all of that in the interview with Brian Lewis after the theme music. The NBA trade deadline came and went. It was a quiet one for Brooklyn, but we're here to break down everything the Nets did and didn't do with Brian Lewis of the New York Post. How are you, man? Appreciate you coming on. Oh, doing well. Thanks for having me. So like I said, pretty quiet trade deadline for the Nets overall. They dealt Spencer Dimwitty for Dennis Schroeder. Schroeder got a stopgap point, stop point guard. He's got one year left on his contract at $13 million. Then they sent Royce O'Neal to Phoenix for Keita Bates-Diop and three second-round picks. So, Brian, talking about these deals, did anything in these deals surprise you? Who was traded, the return, who wasn't traded? No, you know, I got to be honest. I think most of it went, well, it went according to plan in terms of what many people that were close to the team and cover the team expected. I understand that it, the return or lack of huge returns seemed to shock a good amount of the fan base um, that was expecting some sort of superstar or if not superstar, all-star. Coming back, I think the return is pretty much give or take as expected. Um, any variation was just around, you know, around the perimeter, around the edges. So in the case of uh, in the case of Spencer, frankly, at this point, I had almost viewed him like a distressed asset. Mm -hmm. So I thought Dennis Schroeder was probably a slightly better return than I thought they might get. For Spencer, um, then when you look at Royce, they had a couple offers. But when you're looking at, say, Nasir Little and two seconds, you say, okay, this is a young player that maybe possibly we can turn into something and two seconds. And they opted for three seconds and flexibility and cap savings and not as much potential. Right. Yeah. So that's a minor difference for the most part. I think the deadline went as expected. Yeah. And that, you know, that flexibility is a big, you know, talking point with how the financial aspect of the situation played out. And I agree with you, you know, when we were talking 
prior to the deadline about who was going to be traded, who wasn't going to be traded. It seemed like Royce O'Neal was the overwhelming likely candidate to be moved, would have at least somewhat of a market. The Nets didn't get back the first round pick that they wanted, but they got three seconds. And then they didn't take back that guy like Nasir Little, but that offers them fi some financial savings. And then Dinwiddie is the guy who I was a little unsure of because obviously his play had fallen off a cliff. There was known you know discontent with some of what was going on with the nets and they're able to their credit to find a deal with the toronto raptors bringing back schroeder who is another point guard you know a reliable guy i've said since beginning of the year when dimwitty was actually playing some pretty good basketball that if they sent dimwitty out the door they were going to need to get a point guard back somebody because you know ben simmons is at his injury history you know, well-documented, Dennis Smith Jr., not really a guy that can be relied upon. So they get Schroeder, who is under contract next season, and at only $13 million. So that will allow them to re-sign a guy like Nick Claxton while staying under the luxury tax, which they're going to have to do to reset the repeater, and have some flexibility. So that goes into a little bit why they didn't bring back a guy like Nasir Little and opted for that extra second-round pick. But Another guy, Dorian Finney-Smith, who was a top trade candidate who many assumed would be moved. You know, you've reported that the Nets turned down two first-round picks for him at last year's deadline. They were reportedly seeking the equivalent of two firsts again and weren't able to find any takers. So they bring him back. He's got one year left on his deal, then a player option after that. Now, this is a guy who I thought would have a very good chance to be moved when I was looking at the situation, you know, just weeks leading up to this. He shot... 38% from three this year. That's near a career high on career high volume. What did you make of his lack of a market? And was the Nets asking price too high or was the market just really too low? Well, I mean, listen, you, know, you can always ask what you want, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to get it. Um, and then you you deal with whatever the consequences are, right? I I wish I knew how heavy the protections were on those picks but at this point that's that's old history it's ancient history um spilled milk um some could argue that they should have taken them it's it's difficult for me to say they should have taken them when i don't know to a certainty who the picks are where they would have landed and what the protections are right hmm. what is clear is that there was less of a market yesterday than there was a year ago Right. That's what's obvious. Um, is that surprising? Not overly. I mean, a year older, a year less of control. Uh, listen, I think Doe's a fine player. I think he's good. Um, if you were planning to rebuild, not retool, but rebuild, uh, clearly, I think you might have been better suited taking those picks when you had the opportunity. Um, they seem intent on trying to walk this line of retooling on the fly, not tearing it down to the studs, but not necessarily chasing whatever Damian Lillard when he was available or yep. something along those lines. And by the way, not chasing on DeJounte Murray either. Um, so I, I understand why some would look at it. And frankly, I've talked to people around the league that have had a similar reaction to some of the Nets asks for players. And I'm not talking about Kevin Durant because 
you're obviously going to ask the sun, the moon, stars for that kind of player. But just by and large, in general, over the last year, people throughout the league have been mildly surprised when they've reached out to the Nets just casually and said, hey, what would it take to get X? What would it take to get Y? The answers have surprised some of them, and they have felt that the Nets asking prices have been a little bit on the high end. And I'm probably being, I'm probably understating it when I say a little bit. Well, that was, you know, you just touched on that with Dorian Finney-Smith and a little bit of a different conversation from guys like Dinwiddie and O'Neal because Finney-Smith has one and potentially two years left on his contract. But guys like Dinwiddie and Royce O'Neal, where it was known that, you know, I've reported that they are going to try to stay out of the luxury tax next year to avoid, you know, to reset the repeater until 2028 at the earliest it would be. So, you know, they can't bring all these guys back. They have Claxton and they want to resign. You know, Dinwiddie and O'Neal are on expiring contracts. So, whereas with Finney Smith, you could hold on to them and maybe you could afford to, you know, maintain that high asking price. O'Neal and Dinwiddie were guys where you kind of knew this might have been the end of the road for them with where their contracts were expiring. So, that has led to a lot of people saying, you acquired these guys. You know, you've had O'Neal, you had him at last year's deadline, you had him this summer, you acquired Dinwiddie at last year's deadline. Why not move on from them when they might have a little bit of a higher value as opposed to dealing them now where you said, you know, Dinwiddie's damn near a distressed asset. So, you know, were there, to your knowledge, were there any conversations, you know, at that point last trade deadline or this summer, or do you think that those are guys that they could have moved off at at an earlier point to get higher value or were they just asking for too high an offer price on those guys as well? You're saying Dinwiddie and O'Neal last year at the deadline? Yeah, you know, last trade deadline when they had O'Neal and got Dinwiddie or this summer. Right. They had an opportunity to move Dinwiddie to reroute him immediately. And frankly, he was not sure whether he was going to get rerouted. Uh, when he immediately was told about the trade, um, either immediately again or shortly thereafter, he was told that there was a chance that he could be rerouted. Uh, obviously, it turned out not happening, but they obviously could have moved him, could have flipped him somewhere else and, and chose not to. Um, and the point guard situation, look, it's, I mean, we've talked ad nauseum about this. The point guard situation has been worrisome. I understand not rerouting him because if you were going to reroute him at the time, you needed either to be bringing in another point guard in that deal or then take those assets and then go out and search for one. Mm -hmm. And it really came down to the same thing like all season when people were saying, well, look at the way he's playing and look at this body language and, why they, Why is Jacques still playing this guy? Listen, I, I agree. You don't want to reward poor play. But they don't have any other options yeah. at point guard. They And Spencer knew that. They had to play him, right? And it's the same thing when people have asked me about Spencer. They say, well, this you're bringing in this. You're trying to cut salary, aren't you? And you're bringing in this guy who's making $13 million where Spencer's off the books, I say, well, it's not that simple. I mean, Spencer's mm -hmm. off the books, but one, either you have to extend him, and Spencer is not in the business of giving away free money. 
So you were going to have to extend him for a lot more than $13 million a year. Or you were going to have to go out and try to replace him with a starting caliber point guard, who, again, is probably going to cost more than $13 million a year. Or you were going to put all of your eggs in the Ben Simmons basket. Yeah. And hope that he stays healthy somehow, yeah. some way, and, all year. And that, yeah. Or, you know, or re-sign Dennis Smith Jr. and play, you know, Kennedy Chandler. Yeah. None of these are, to my mind, good options. Not one of them. So, that was not seemed to be the conundrum with Dinwiddie, you know, even at last year's deadline. You know, if they flip him, you know, they traded Kyrie Irving and they traded Kevin Durant in the span of, what, two or three days. Then you got to flip Dinwiddie and you also need to get back, you know, uh, like you said, a serviceable point guard so your team just isn't an absolute dumpster fire for the rest of the year. Maybe, you know, then the summer might be the point where you would look to move him and then how much more value does he have, you know, during the summer as opposed to at this trade deadline. You'd think at least some given how much his play tanked as the situation kind of, you know, got worse and worse here. O'Neal might be the guy who you have a glut of wings. You have Dorian Finney-Smith. You have Cam Johnson, obviously Mikhail Bridges. You know, you draft a guy in Jalen Wilson. Is he a guy that you could have moved off earlier and gotten more value? You know, all we can do is speculate. They got three second-round picks for him. They reportedly wanted a protected first, so it's not too far off from the asking price. So, you know, that's where it stood with those guys. But you also did some reporting on Mikhail Bridges and the Houston Rockets ahead of the deadline. You said that even if the Rockets would have given the Nets an offer that would have returned all of their draft picks from the James Harden trade, the Nets still would have said no. Now, do you have any knowledge? You know, it's been reported that Houston was very interested in Bridges as they're looking to make a playoff push. Do you have any knowledge of how far their inquiries for Bridges went? I mean – there were substantive substantive talks <laughs> about bridges. Houston did offer much of what was remaining, not all, but much of what was remaining of the haul that they got from Brooklyn, right? However, that was not something that was of interest to the Nets because they are not, and I say this from the highest corridors of power there, they are not interested in tearing this down to the studs and rebuilding. They're just not. Now, you can argue the wisdom of that, but that's not on the cards here. And it's, it's understandable when you look at the Knicks and what they're doing across town. They have a hard enough time gaining traction when the Knicks have been mediocre. And couldn't get out of their own way. Now? I mean, you'd be beneath irrelevant if you tore it down to the studs and were winning 20 games a year. So, you know, this is something that I've talked about with other people and kind of weighing. Well, before we get into that, you know, we've we've heard a lot from fans ahead of the deadline and now very loudly after this deadline saying that they have no idea what the Nets' direction is. Now, a deal with Houston obviously would allow them to enter a proper rebuild that would give them a direction. But as you said, all signs have pointed to them wanting to pursue a star to pair with Bridges. They've retained their picks. Adrian Wojnarowski said on his podcast, you know, ahead of the deadline that they want a big name and that plenty of guys want to play with Bridges and that they've been telling everybody no on Bridges. He has two years left on his contract after this season. So I've said, you know, when everybody was freaking out about him, not them not trading him, you know, 
He has two years left. There's no rush to deal him at the deadline because it's much easier for a lot of teams to make deals in the summer when more picks are available and they have a better sense of where they stand. So, you know, Bridges being off the table, do, how much of that stance do you think could potentially be posturing? Or is this a situation where they could survey the market for a star this summer or even next trade deadline? And if they can't get one, pivot and deal Bridges? Or are they set? on building, you know, around him and finding that next star piece. I mean, this is going to sound very wishy-washy, like I'm a politician. I I don't like to deal in absolutes, mm-hmm. right? So obviously, if... They're not going to say it if they yeah, want Yeah, I mean, obviously, if, if the Dallas Mavericks get a trade demand from Luka and Luka says, I only want to play in Brooklyn. Yeah, obviously, you... I would trade Mikel Bridges to get Luca. Of course, they, any player has a price, but it's not posturing when I say they are not actively looking to deal him. They are not looking at him and saying, okay, this is the ticket for my rebuild. They're not looking at Mikel Bridges the way Jimmy Johnson looked at Herschel Walker. Let me put it to you. that <laughs> They're not saying I'm going to deal him and I'm going to get so many picks that I'll have my rebuild. They are looking at him as a foundational piece. Now, when I say that, I understand that there are some fans that get mad and they say he's not a superstar. I'm not necessarily saying that they have mandated that he will forever be the best player on their roster and they don't ever want to have a player better than him. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they are of the mindset from having supposedly intel throughout the league that there are a number of players who are stars who view Mikhail as a perfect complement. They say, this is a guy that I want to play with. He plays defense. He doesn't need a ridiculously high usage rate. He won't get in my way. I can still get mine and he can still be effective. So those players would want to play alongside him. So therefore he can be, if not a recruiting tool, certainly a bonus for those players. So they will look and try to keep their powder dry until one of those players becomes available. But I've said before, everything that they have said and done to me screams reset for 2025 Mm -hmm. and nothing that I've seen from them or heard from them privately or publicly has changed my mind on that. Yeah. And you know, that's the, that's what the signals are pointing to. That's what, you know, we'll talk, I'm going to, we'll close and we'll talk about some of the stuff that Sean Mark said in his presser, but all the signs are pointing to them, you know, having, at least some knowledge of what the lay of the land could look like in terms of stars that could become available. And this was what you said about having knowledge about other players viewing Kale Bridges as a compliment. Adrian Wojnarowski, when he said that they're telling everybody no on Bridges, this is exactly what they, what he said. He said, there's nowhere he doesn't fit, but they love Bridges there. They want to bring in the next big player. Everybody wants to play with Mikhail Bridges. So you hope that they want to do it in Brooklyn. Obviously, Woj, you know, he he knows what's going on in the NBA and yeah. has some, you know, they're hoping that he is going to attract that next guy. Now, the question has continued to be, 
who is that next guy? And I think a lot of the frustration from the fan base obviously comes from the lack of clarity on that end. And it could seem like the Nets are just hoping that somebody falls into their lap to save them from the desolate situation that they find themselves in right now. Now, obviously, you know, the guy who a lot of people are thinking could came in, came to Brooklyn on trade deadline day. He just, he just did it for the other team. And then he lit up the nets for 27 points on 10 of 18 shooting and blew them out for the second time that he's played them um, in the last two games. So obviously talking about Donovan Mitchell, you know, it's unclear, you know, what Mitchell's situation could hold the Cavaliers. I don't think it bodes well that the Cavaliers are on an absolute tear right now and playing like the best team in the NBA over the last, what, 16 games. So you know, that doesn't help. But a guy who, you know, people in the know have said has been unwilling to sign a contract extension in Cleveland thus far. And, you know, we'll we'll see what happens in the playoffs with them. And that ultimately is what's going to determine a lot of this because, you know, every year there's teams that exit in the playoffs earlier than they want to earlier than they had anticipated. And then that leads to, you know, potentially stars becoming available. So that could be something, but I think an interesting conversation with bridges is, as you said, and as we both said, if they were going to trade him and reset, they're not, they weren't doing it at this trade deadline. And because of that, they're not going to say, Oh yeah, we're taking offers on Mikhail bridges. You know, we, we might trade him. We might not like we're listening not a great signal to send to your top player. So there is no advantage to doing that right now, but he's got two years left on his contract. And we're getting to the point where if they can't land a star this summer and they can't land a star, this trade deadline and you're holding bridges, and then he's got one year left on his contract, you're getting to the point where it's going to start to hurt his value in trade conversation. So in your opinion, do you see, you know, when is, when would it be too late? to try to pivot off bridges and you said 2025. So is this something where they could be looking at extending him and taking that window beyond that? It's hard for me to answer that because I'm not in the room when they're having conversations with Mikhail Bridges. And if they haven't learned anything at all, and it's possible that they haven't, but if they haven't learned anything at all, I would hope that they learned the importance of being in sync with your best players. Now, I'm not saying that Mikhail Bridges is as good as Kevin Durant, because he's not. He's not he's, as good as James Harden. He's the top player, though. But he's your best player, right? And you have repeatedly put him forward as your foundational piece, face of the franchise. As angry as fans get, when they go back and they think about the Harden trade, meaning Harden asking out and then bringing back Ben Simmons, who just has not been able to stay on the court long enough. I understand fans ire, right? When they look at how much Ben Simmons gets paid and how infrequently he plays. To me, and I probably am in the minority on this, I don't look at trading for Ben Simmons as the mistake. I, I, I look at it, that's almost like, and this is probably a horrible analogy, but that's like when you have a car accident and you're doing everything right on the road. It's not that you drove recklessly. It's that you didn't listen to your wife when she kept telling you to check those tires and then you had a blowout, right? You just didn't see the signs coming. 
So when James Harden is running around telling everybody in the league, these people don't know what they're doing. I can't deal with it. I want out. I'm leaving. And then telling the Nets, oh, no, I don't know where you heard that from. Unless you hear it from me, it's not real. I'm good. And then the trade deadline's on a Thursday. And Sean Marks is finding out whatever it was, like Monday night or Tuesday morning. Oh, yeah, I want out. Not the, That's best, the, not the best look for management. In right? That. That's the problem. Yeah. The problem isn't that this was the best deal you could get in whatever, 48 hours or 52 hours or whatever it was. The problem is you have to be, have to be on the same page with your best players. Right? Look how long Joel Embiid has been in Philadelphia. Look how long Giannis has been in Milwaukee, right? So I'm going to loop this back around. It's a long-winded answer, but hopefully they are on the same page with Mikhail. And hopefully Mikhail understands what the grand plan is, the grand plan that the fans are not privy to, the grand plan that the fans are angry has not been disseminated to them, Hopefully, it's been disseminated to Mikhail, and that Mikhail is on board with this, and Mikhail understands what the timeline is. Now, if that means extending him, by all means, then extend him. But hopefully, he gets what it is, and he's with it. Because if he's not, then you have a problem. Then you have to start looking and saying, okay, what is my cutoff date where if I don't get a a running mate for him, a partner, a suitable star level partner for him, I have to consider moving him. And agreed. And and that's an interesting, there's a couple of things that make that interesting. One is the fact that Mikhail Bridges has been a winner everywhere that he's gone in his NBA, in his basketball career, you know, yeah. from high school to winning a national title at Villanova to making it to the finals with Phoenix. And now he is in a situation where he's leading the nets and they're losing a lot. So, you know, and he's a guy that you and I both know. When the Nets lose, he he wears it on his sleeve. You know, it's written all over his face. He's a guy, you know, you know, you hear in the NBA, every, you know, everybody should hate losing and this and that and all the cliches. But Mikhail, he hates losing. And he's yeah. not. He takes it off. The impressors, it's a lot of one, two, three word answers when they lose. And he is not happy about it. So with all the losing that they're going through right now, you'd hope that he is in the loop on that plan and that he has an understanding of what's going to happen. Now, I said two things. The second thing that makes that interesting is Mikhail Bridges is 27 years old. You know, it's he's a guy that he's in his prime, but it's not like, you know, he's 22, 23, 24, right. and they there's this eight-year window ahead of him. And it's it was a little interesting because last night during Marx's presser, he had a few answers. And then one of them, he said, he talked about it being exciting what happens when Mikhail enters his prime. And I'm like, do, do I, is Mikhail younger than I, than I know? Is there something that I don't know here? He's 27. Yeah. Yeah. He's 27. He's played more than anybody in the NBA over the last five years. He hasn't missed a game till since high school. They're running him 35 to 40 minutes a night right now. So, you know, it's not something where you have all the time in the world. Now, the next comment that was interesting in conjunction with that is he said, I don't want to say we're on a three-year timetable or a four-year timetable. It could be faster than that. We've seen it move quicker than that in the past. So 
That's why I find it interesting. And you talk about, you know, getting that guy to pair with Mikhail, him being on board, it not being too late. That might come sooner than people think, or maybe not sooner than people think. Maybe people might want it to happen right now. But this summer, next trade deadline, you know, you're get. that's why I asked the question about the extension. You're getting to a point where you have Mikhail's contract working against you because I'm one of the best value deals in the league right now. And once you extend him, a lot of that value is going to be lost, having him you know, on that number, and it helps you build in other areas. So you got the contract, and then you got his age. If he's 27, and he plays a lot of basketball and puts a lot of mileage on his legs. Which scares the hell out of me. (laughs) It does. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it scares the living hell out of me how much he plays. Exactly. And that has to factor into this conversation. So, you know, from what Mark said last night, at least to me, you know, he tried, he sent some mixed signaling as all GMs do, but it signaled to me that this is something that could happen fast and that they, they understand, obviously, even though he made that comment about his prime, they know this could be an accelerated timeline. He's 27. The clock is ticking from a contract and an age perspective. Was there anything from Marx's presser that stood out to you or that surprised you with the comments that he made? Uh, certainly not about the timeline, because like I said, I, I, I've long thought it was a 2025 timeline that could be accelerated if the opportunity presents itself. Yes. So mm-hmm. if you're in a situation where you're looking for 2025, but somebody asks out and it happens, people get disgruntled. And 20, 2025 being that, that's going to be the last year of Mikhail's contract, right? It's the, well, no, well, it's the one, last one and a half year. years left. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's the last year of Ben's contract. Yeah, so that's a okay. hefty contract. All right. So um, yeah, yeah not, not that didn't surprise me. I thought it was interesting, and maybe I assume maybe I mistook him when he said, "Well, I'm, it'll be interesting to see what happens when Mikhail hits the prime." Yeah, that was. It'll be interesting to see what happens when Nick hits his prime because clearly this is a guy that they would like to retain. Mm. As financially painful as it is going to be, that is definitely somebody they want to retain. When he said Cam hits his prime, I took that to mean Cam Thomas. I did as well. But I, when I was writing it up and transcribing and putting it in the article, I... I didn't want to assume, so I wasn't sure. But I thought right. Cam Thomas. As I well. don't know to a certainty because they have several cams <laughs> on their roster. But if he said Cam Thomas, or if he means Cam Thomas, that was interesting to hear him view Cam as part of their core going forward. You know, now if he means. Cam Johnson, yeah, Cam Johnson is on the same kind of timeline that Mikhail is on. If he means Cam Thomas, and I, I certainly don't have to go into all the details about, you know, let's say how impactful on the fan base Cam Thomas is. <laughs> but I know too well. Right. But that would be intriguing if he is openly saying, yes, this guy who a year ago could not two years ago basically couldn't get playing time and a year ago couldn't get in the rotation and this year has been in and out of the starting lineup and couldn't get in the rotation when they needed scoring desperately after yes. KD and Kyrie left that yes. was 
That's still shocking to me yes. to this day. It is interesting to hear him saying that guy, who, by the way, they probably will have decisions to make on an extension again this summer. It would be interesting to see if he means that guy is part of our core. That's what we view as part of our foundation going forward. Agreed. I, that comment with Cam, I wasn't sure if he meant Thomas or I'm not sure either. So uh, was, I just yeah. know how I took it. But that's how, that's I how I took it. To a thought it was equally interesting, you know, given, you know, the past of Thomas with the Nets is well documented. And we're talking about them not being on the same page as superstars. Talk about really not being on the same page as somebody <laughs> that, you know, he's he's gotten the reins lately. Now, that was part of that seemed to be not nothing, no beef with Thomas. But part of Dinwiddie's discontent was he was off the ball you know, over those last, that last month plus. And, you know, fans have been, it's it's interesting with these fans because the fans complain about Dinwiddie having the ball and Thomas not getting the reins and let Thomas cook, put him in the starting lineup, do this, do that. And then they do it. And while Dinwiddie's role diminished and his attitude did more than I thought it would be, it was kind of what the fans asked for. The Nets gave Thomas the ball and I asked Jock about Dimwitty and his diminishing role. And he said, point blank, when Cam and McHale are out there, they're going to have the ball most of the times. And, you know, Spencer didn't have enough comment, you know, enough opportunities with the ball or wasn't going to have opportunities with the ball. Now, you could argue, could they have found a better role for Spencer, you know, and, you know, have those three guys mesh together more, you know, cohesively? Maybe. But Cam is getting, you know, unless you don't agree, the opportunity that I think a lot of fans wanted them, him to get? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. One, he is getting the opportunity. Two, I think his uh, passing has improved exponentially. Uh, yes, Jacques did say that, and Spencer has said the same thing, <laughs> that when they're out there, I'm standing in the corner or I'm, I, I don't have the ball. That's all true. The one thing I would say is I don't necessarily say the fans are getting what they want. What I would say is it's not necessarily the same fans, right? There are different sub-segments of the fan base. Yeah, of course. There are some sub-segments of the fan base that would be quite happy to have seen Mikhail traded for four picks and Nick traded for three picks. And that means Cam Johnson's probably getting traded for two picks. Just let Cam Thomas cook. Mm -hmm. Right. There are fans that view it that way. Right. So I don't know that it's necessarily the same group of fans yeah. um, that are saying they're getting what they wanted. Uh, I'm not sure that it is. Yeah. Just well, getting what they want from in, I meant the context of Cam Thomas getting, you know, the opportunities and the expanded role and the opportunity to, you know, maybe play through some struggles or, you know, improve as a playmaker through added opportunity, which is what Cam has said when I've asked him in the past about, you know, his perceived playmaking deficiencies is, well, that, you know, that improves with reps and you know, I need the reps is what he said, which, you know, you can't disagree with, you know, that's, that's true, but you know, about going to round it out about there. But before we go, any parting thoughts, you know, with Nets, the Nets fan base and Nets Twitter in disarray on this day after the deadline, 
any parting thoughts on the trade deadline, where the team stands, you know, where they could be going, anything you'd want to leave the fans with? Well, all I would say is just understand. And most people that have been net fans for a while probably understand this, but patience will be required. (laughs) It's not easy. And I understand to all those that are Brooklyn fans and, you know, Lord help you. If you were net fans pre-Brooklyn, you've been a net fan for a while. It's not easy. It's not quite the same as being a Celtic fan or a Laker fan or a Heat fan. Patience will be required and you may not get the results that you want. Um, what I would say is this, really honestly, I, I do think it's a I do think it's a decent locker room. Most of those guys in there are good. They're really good to deal with. I enjoy covering them. It's a pleasure. Um, but I, I don't think that any turnaround is instantaneous, right? You it, they were never in with Damian Lillard. Frankly, they didn't really want DeJounte Murray that much. I think you're going to have to be patient and see this through and accept that this timeline probably isn't going to be as advanced as you want. It probably is going to take 2025 until you take your shot. And there's no guarantee even that taking your shot will be instant gratification. I'm just saying the reset will take until 2025 and then you'll be able to judge, okay, we reset. Now we're going forward. Let's see what the results are. Okay. Well, there you have it, Nets fans. Patience is a virtue, as Brian Lewis would say. Brian, appreciate you taking the time. Nets fans, if you don't already, follow Brian's work. You should. If you want somebody who's been around the block and seen it all, with the Nets, you know, in Brooklyn, Brian is the guy. So I appreciate you taking the time, man. And that does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. You guys like the interview with Brian. If you guys enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Smash the like button. Leave a five-star review if you can. That really goes a long way. I'm trying to build this podcast up in terms of a subscriber base. So that really means a lot. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Brian, a guy who's been around the Nets organization forever, longer than any other beat writer that's on the beat, knows the lay of the land, and has a good you know finger on the pulse of what's going on. So really good to talk to him. The Nets, post-trade deadline, the roster's set. They're going to get Dennis Schroeder in the lineup, it seems like. Saturday versus San Antonio. They've now lost three straight after a stretch that they had won three of four. They're now 11 games under 500, 11th in the Eastern Conference. So can they build up a little momentum? They got San Antonio and they got two matchups with the Boston Celtics on a back-to-back before the All-Star break. So we'll see. We'll see where they go from here. We'll see how some of these new additions help them, how some of the departures may hurt them. And we'll have plenty of coverage for it moving forward on Believe in Nets. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E. 
AV on YouTube.